This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew Moore, producer of the show, and we have a great conversation for you today. This episode was recorded live at the historic St. James Missionary Baptist Church in Fayetteville. Before we jump into the conversation, I wanted to give you a heads up that we ran into a snag with recording this conversation. So you may notice a little bit of noise that you don't traditionally hear on this show. That's the give and take of producing a live episode. This was a really great conversation. So let's get into it. Thank you for coming out. My name is, thank you, thank you. My name is Matthew Moore. I am a reporter and producer for KUAF, and I'm the producer for Undisciplined. And we are very excited to be here in Fayetteville at St. James Missionary Baptist Church. Um, we're grateful for this opportunity to be here. And we're grateful for those of you who are joining us online, those of you who are live with us, and those of you who next week will be hearing this on the podcast. Um, I will take a moment to, uh, to introduce our host, Dr. Karee Banton. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much uh, for having us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here at my home church uh, that has been, you know, my attendance has been disru- disrupted by COVID. I hope Pastor Smith has not mar- marked me off the roll. <laughs> but uh, it's really a joy uh, to be here and to uh, be amongst these great panelists. Uh, I want to, uh, before we start, to give an overview of the topic that we'll be discussing today, which is uh, religion and liberation. Uh, and before we get with these experts, uh, the theologists, I wanted to, uh, uh, who represent various denominations, um, I wanted to give a view from another denomination that I'm familiar with by uh, reading a little excerpt from a professor and mentor of mine, Dennis Dickerson, and his recent book that was published by Cambridge University Press on the African Methodist Episcopal Church uh, history. In 1903, W.E.B. Du Bois, hardly a denominational partisan, described the great African Methodist Church as, quote, the greatest Negro organization in the world, end of quote. Only the National Baptist Convention, recently organized in 1896, exceeded the half a million membership that the African Methodist Episcopalians claimed. But the Baptists, an aggregation of autonomous state conventions and local congregations, lack the hierarchical structure of this black Methodist body. The bishops, presiding elders, pastors, and many other officials of the African Methodist Episcopal Church forged a cohesive infrastructure that proved to doubtful whites that African Americans were fully capable of effective self-governance. In addition to Du Bois's praise for the institutional achievements of the Amy Church, he was equally impressed with its longevity. Already a century old at the time of Du Bois's comments, African Methodism had become a venerable religious body with bishops who were, quote, among the most powerful Negro rulers in the world. In 2004, 
Gerard S. Wilmore, a Presbyterian and African-American religious intellectual, confirmed Du Bois's description of the Amy Church and called it America's premier predominantly black denomination. Just as African Methodism drew Du Bois and Wilmore's admiration, other scholars discovered crucial liberation themes in the Amy narrative which explained, defined, and reflected the discourse and strategies that African Americans pursued to attain their freedom. Horace Mann Bond, for example, credited the church with making no compromise with the essential idea of human liberty and for inspiring President Lincoln to in insert his ideal into the Emancipation Proclamation. Eddie S. Glaude showed how the Exodus theme shaped black political discourse and view Amy founder Richard Allen exit from Philadelphia's St. George's Church in 1787 as a reenactment of Moses and his followers' epic departure from slavery in Egypt. Allen's act defied the racism of Wesleyan whites and led to the rise of the Amy Church and black congregations that either were independent or affiliated with white ecclesiastical bodies. Just as Moses had led ancient Hebrews to their promised land in Canaan, the St. George incident was replicated in other episodes in African-American experience and became a metaphor for ongoing efforts to find havens for the enslaved and oppressed. For denominational adherents, the perspectives of Du Bois, Bond, and Glaude echoed their own view that African Methodism embodied an emancipatory ethos that blacks throughout the diaspora embraced and emulated. George A. Singleton, a prolific ME scholar, observed that, quote, the very idea of former slaves resenting social injustice to the extent that they break away from old, the old organization is startling. In Allen's uh, philosophy, he declared, quote, there is no room for color discrimination or segregation. And that explained their separation from white Methodists. The AME founder, Singleton noted, rose, quote, above caste and proscription and sought liberation for the black population. Charles H. Wesley, an AME historian, added that, quote, Richard Allen regarded the Negro people as an oppressed minority who needed an aggressive leadership to achieve its emancipation. The AME Church, Wesley declared, was Allen's vehicle to realize this objective. Hence, as the denomination grew and the organization was strengthened, the march toward black liberation gained momentum. When planning expansion in Maryland, a slave state, Allen hoped, quote, that the example of free Negroes who had their own preachers and churches would have the effect of keeping slaves dissatisfied with their condition. That was precisely the point that Allen aimed to articulate. He clearly envisaged African Methodism as a part of a freedom movement to liberate slaves and secure black freedom throughout the Atlantic world. Just as the liberation of black Atlantic um, define the mission and ministry of African Methodism, its anchoring in Wesleyan theology also reinforced its emancipationist ethos. As a freedom church, Amy's developed a different denomination from whites 
from what whites in Methodist Episcopal churches established in the 1784 Christmas Conference. Far more than their Caucasian counterparts, African Methodists adhered to John Wesley's unyielding opposition to slavery and found within its practical theology a moral warrant to challenge sinful societal structures that sustained and perpetuated racial oppression. Amy's understood that personal renewal or scriptural holiness experienced through the salvific process of sanctification and perfectionism extended into and required replication into all of creation. Hence, saved and sanctified Methodists should practice social holiness and serve as leaving to perfect society away from slavery and other forms of human subjugation. Commitment to these theological tenets spurred Richard Allen, Daniel Coker, and other AME founders during the lifetime of John Wesley to develop an alternative vision of American-based Methodism that was truer to the founders' intentions than the Wesleyan whites envisage. Daniel A. Payne, an early bishop, viewed these competing tendencies as complementary facets of his denomination's emancipationist ethos. At the same time, he thought that the fight against oppression, while dangerous, drew far more applause than the founding churches and schools and expanding them into friendly territories. He fervently believed that his institutional activities fulfill liberationist objectives that would sustain African Americans in their hard-won freedoms. Carol George, in her assessment of antebellum black clergy, who selected institutional building over abolitionist activity, acknowledged the tensions between these two vocational paths and concluded that both choices involved emancipationist objectives. Payne offered an apologia for his vocational decision by comparing himself to his contemporary Frederick Douglass, the celebrated abolitionist and black equal rights champion. Douglas, who had been affiliated with Baltimore's Bethel Amy Church, escaped slavery in 1838 and became an Amy Zion exhorter in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Like Payne, white abolitionists heard him speak and immediately drafted the eloquent ex-slave into organized abolitionism. Payne believed, however, that he and Douglas were divinely assigned to their respective roles in the black freedom struggle. Frederick Douglass, he declared, was fitted for this speciality. Daniel Alexander Payne for his. Frederick Douglass could not do the work that was assigned to Daniel Alexander Payne, nor Daniel Alexander Payne the work assigned to Frederick Douglass. Du Bois agreed that Douglass and Payne, though different, both embodied a liberationist persona. Douglass, Du Bois said, was, quote, the greatest of American Negro leaders. But Payne was, quote, less conspicuous, but of greater social significance. Henry McNeil Turner, himself a leading black spokesman, reconstruction politician, and Amy Bishop recognized the dual spheres in which Payne and Douglas operated. When Douglas visited the 1884 General Conference in Baltimore, Turner declared that, quote, as Frederick Douglass was the greatest colored statesman in the world, and as Bishop Payne is the greatest colored theologian, he would ask Bishop Payne to present Douglass to the AME audience. 
campaign, quote, in a very able and graceful manner, introduced Mr. Douglas as a great statesman and advocate of freedom. Douglas, in turn, acknowledged the influence and significance of the church. Quote, great is the press and great is the ballot, he declared. But still greater is the pulpit. This nod to pain validated the bishop's institutional labors as integral to African-American advancement as much as his own involvement in politics and protests. Payne and Douglas in different but complementary arenas authenticated each other as frontline leaders in the black freedom struggle. Payne envisaged the expansion of African Methodism as an affront to slavery and as a blow for freedom. Hence, those who undertook institutional tasks were obliged to relate them to emancipationist objectives. And I'll stop there and get to our panelists. Certainly, uh, that is just one view from the church. So I'll take a moment to introduce our panel here. Uh, on our far right here, we have Lowell Taylor. Thank you. In the center here, we have Dustin McGowan. And to Carrie's right, we have Minister Suzanne Bridges. And I was wondering, given that, um, you know, thinking about the AME and AME's thinking of themselves as the liberation church, I wonder when it comes to liberation from a religious perspective, how do you all think about it? Yeah, I can go first. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the, the powerful thing uh, about the faith is that it gives, it, it, it is used as a tool of liberation because it gives us the ability to think about things transcendently, um, that uh, rise above the, the, the temporal analysis of the here and now, um, and to allow us to say what is bigger and grander than the philosophies, the ideals which we have constructed. Um, and that oftentimes we create um, in ways that benefit me and people like me. That there has to be an ethic. <laughs> there has to be a worldview greater than that. Um, and when you look, think about the faith and, it, and, it, and its all-encompassing view that all people are welcome into it, uh, how do how do how do we live into that faithfully? And one of the, the beautiful things we think about, you know, especially in a month like February, Black History Month, is that the, that uh, our ancestors uh, in slavery understood the truth of the faith that was being attempted to be withheld from them. Right, even in the, the uh, when given Bibles that that remove the Exodus mm -hmm. and other passages of Scripture, mm -hmm. um, over seventy percent of the Scripture, right, and anything that reference freedom and liberation, uh, you you know that this is not the whole story. Mm -hmm. That this is pointing to something, um, is and and to be used as that tool, and that if you track, uh, you know, in our country the history of uh, the Black liberation struggle faith uh, has always been at the center of it, right? We think about the, 
the Underground Railroad, right? Many of the songs mm -hmm. that talked about how to escape right. were black Christian spirituals, mm. right? We talk about many of the people who are the uh, the archetypes, I mean, are the, who are the spearheaders of the movements from generation to generation are people of faith, uh, who people who are digging in and saying, no, the faith in which we have been given was not the true faith. The, the true faith is a liberating faith. You know, even as you just recently spoke about Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass writes, he says, there's no, I see no wilder, no wider difference than the, the, the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ. And so he says that you know, this is not it, but the Christianity of Jesus frees and liberates. As, you know, we look at the scripture, you know, justice is the most common theme in the Bible. And so how do we live into that? It's, the, it's always the challenging question. Yeah, I can, I can speak to that. Uh, first, I'm really happy and honored to be here. Thank you, uh, Dr. Banton, uh, for the invitation. Um, I'm, I'm not a paid religious professional. Um, I'm a, a lay person. Um, and and I, I want to comment on that just briefly to say, um, you know, I think that uh, for folks who, who are lay people, we have an important role um, in, in that uh, we're, we're the majority of folks in the community. Um, and, and so our pastors are, are important people and we want to honor them, but we also have a role to play. And so I say that to say, uh, I'm not here as a person with expertise, but as a person with, with a passion to contribute to the conversation. Um, and, and also uniquely, um, Dustin, I appreciate you alluding to, to Frederick Douglass. I was looking at that quote myself, um, because I'm somebody as, as a white person who, as Jonathan, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove has written, is trying to find freedom from slaveholder religion. Uh, he wrote a book called Reconstructing the Gospel um, I'm a person who, who comes from the group of folks who have been doing the oppressing um, and who's trying to figure out, um, as Dustin said and as Douglas said, um, what is the religion of Christ um, and, and what is the difference between um, that which Jesus preaches and, and in Luke 4 when he says, you know, he announces his ministry. He said, I came to set people free. Um, what's the difference between that and what we see practiced in our community and sometimes preach from our pulpits, especially in the white Christian community? Um, and so one other thing that I'll mention and, and something that I've been reflecting on when we talk about freedom um, and liberation, um, you know, the question like, what did Jesus come to set us free from? Um, and I think the answer is, is everything. And, and often we, we have a dichotomy um, you know, between um, the body and the soul, the sacred and the secular. And Dr. King spoke about this in his letter from a Birmingham jail, and he was critical of white pastors who uh, committed themselves to what he called an otherworldly religion. So often in the white Christian community, we're more comfortable with Jesus saying, you know, um, he came to, for, for the poor in spirit than for the poor, right? And we're more comfortable with um, Jesus coming to um, liberate people, um, but less comfortable addressing systemic issues. Um, and so I think that Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself and, and that we've made a false dichotomy in the white Christian community, um, and I think often disingenuously so, um, because the systems that we see in our community benefit us and people who look like us, and so we're not incentivized to change those systems based on our material needs or our material comfort. Um, and so I think that's probably enough 
for, for this first question. Um, <laughs> but, but ultimately, happy to be here and, and to figure this out yeah. together. I'll just just add um, uh, piggyback with uh, what Dustin said um, on just the issue of how many uh, people don't realize um, how much of the Bible you t touched on this with the slave Bible right and those books um, um, that uh, are filled with God's justice and, and freedom and how that was removed. There's so many um, people. Um, I'm millennial. Um, and I've got some people that may be watching, they're going to laugh when I say that, when I say that I'm a millennial. <laughs> but how many of us um, don't realize that and how many of us um, believe even now um, just in the whitewashing of, of Christianity in terms of it being the white man's religion. And as a result of the whitewashing of Christianity, they believe that it's the white man's religion. Um, and um, as a minister of the gospel, that just creates a burden for me. Um, because I, I'm constantly having to share with others um, that Christianity is not the white man's religion. Has a whitewashing taken effect? Yes, but it is not um, the white man's religion. And, and my ancestors, um, when, they, when um, they heard the Bible stories, because obviously often they couldn't read the Bible for themselves, um, but they quickly identified with the oppressed. They quickly identified with the children of, of Israel, um, and sought after liberation and, and freedom. So I just wanted to uh, add that. Man, there's a lot of ways that I really want to take this. Um, there's some, We talked about the, the letter from a Birmingham jail that Dr. King wrote. There's one piece from that specifically that always really sticks out to me when I read that. And, and Dr. King was writing this to white pastors, and one of the lines that he talks about is this idea that that pastors were staring into the anesthetizing stained glass of their buildings, that, that they were comfortable where they were because the stained glass from within anesthetized them, and they didn't think about the people who were outside of those walls. They didn't think about the people who may have looked different from them, who had different experiences from them. Um, when, we think about, when we think about, especially during that civil rights era, what has changed <laughs> since then? And what, what areas can we change and what ways do you hope that things are changing within white churches and black churches? You know, there's, I grew up in a Baptist church and the joke that we always made was the most uh, segregated hour of the week is during church on Sunday mornings. That's a James Baldwin quote. That's wonderful. I love High James noon Baldwin. on Sunday. Absolutely. <laughs> what can we do to to make that less of a thing? Or does it not need to be less of a thing? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I'll just uh, quickly say one of the things um, is knowing our history and not forgetting our history, not rewriting our history, um, and not keeping our history from being taught in schools. I, I would say that that would be the number one start. Yeah. 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 Uh... I think one of the important things, even as we think about um, uh, the separation in the church, I think the, the, uh, an important thing for us to be able to do, even as we even look at the, the, the scriptures, is to understand that often whom God is posturing himself against in mm -hmm. the scripture. Mm 
Mm. But a lot of times, you know, and this is probably a reason why a lot of people don't read, you know, the prophets, <laughs> that, uh, that God, when he is angry, we, we, we have to find out why he's angry. Mm-hmm. And that when God is angry, he's not angry about sexual immorality. Mm. <laughs> that is a, that is a, a symptom of a greater problem. Yeah. Right. And when he when he calls out people, he's calling them out for injustice. Yeah. Right. And we look at an Ezekiel passage and and he, and he references Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. And he, he doesn't bring up what we typically talk about, why Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Right. But he says that they oppress the widow and the poor and the, and the foreigner, he mm-hmm. says, and they did many wicked things in my sight and I destroyed that land. Right. And we talk about God rising up against injustice. Um, and oftentimes what has happened throughout, throughout the history of the church is that, is that especially in times where there is not persecution, is that we find uh, the, the church becoming more institutionalized and hoarding power, mm. right? And oftentimes when you hoard, hoard power, you posture yourself against the marginalized mm-hmm. in order to hold on to that. And so we see that time and time again, not only in our historical context, but we see it in the scriptures as well, right? We see Jesus posturing himself against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, right? Because they did that same thing, right? And he tells them in, in, in chapter 23 of Matthew, he says, you know, you, you have tied the deal and the cumin and the mint. He says, but you should have uh, paid more attention to the more weightier matters of the law, which is justice, which is mercy, which is faithfulness. You should have done the former without neglecting the latter. And, and oftentimes that's what we see in many of our churches and institutions is that we have, uh, have committed ourselves to the comfortable aspects of religion while neglecting the more important parts because they call and demand more of us, right? And it's not just, you know, as, you know, some of the prophets talks about, you know, the, the, the priests laying on beds of ivory, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, but it is a faith that actually calls out to the margins. When God says in, in, in Isaiah and, and in, uh, in Micah, he says that the fast that I choose is that you would care for the widow and for the orphan mm-hmm. and for the foreigner, right? He said, he's calling out. He says the things that we are giving God is not what he requests, Mm-hmm. Right. And we find ourselves doing the same thing now, which is why we find, you know, in, in, in many of our churches, people siding with their own interests mm-hmm. versus doing what's just, which is doing what is the liberating behavior, which is actually doing what Jesus would actually do. And then we actually minimize the words of Jesus because they contradict us. They, they condemn us. Right. And we 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 want to focus on the things that make us uh, more at ease. And that'll preach, Dustin. <laughs> that'll um, preach. Man. Um, yeah, Matthew, I love the question. Um, and like you said, there's a, there's a million different ways you could take it. I mean, I'm a product of the books that I've read and the people I've met, like most of us probably are. Um, and two books come to mind. One is Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Um, and another is Divided by Faith by Emerson and Smith. And... Um, you know, the question that Howard Thurman asked in the introduction of the book is, why is it that Christianity has failed to deal radically and therefore effectively with the problem of discrimination on the basis of race and class? Um, and in the first chapter, he answers the question. 
um, he, he expounds on the answer, but the answer is basically, he says, um, too often the price that society has paid for respectability and security is that the Christian movement and its formal expression must be on the side of the strong against the weak. Um, Jamar Tisby in The Color of Compromise has a similar answer. He says, when it comes to racial justice, we don't have a how-to problem. Excuse me. We don't have a how-to problem. We have a want-to problem. Mm -hmm. And this book is addressed specifically to the white Christian community in America. Um, he, he addresses two root causes of the inaction that Dr. King described in Letter from a Birmingham Jail that has continued in the white Christian community, specifically the white evangelical community, fear of man and fear of failure. And, and so my conviction is, you know, for myself as a white person and for my community, that ultimately, you know, as Dustin alluded to in Matthew 23, like we have neglected the weightier matters of the law because we are afraid because we do not trust God. Um, and, and because of that, we maintain, um, and, and I think, you know, your, your question in part was, you know, do we need to integrate our churches? Mm -hmm. Is it a good or a bad thing that we have black and white churches? And I don't want to comment on that necessarily, um, but I think a, a, another important element of that question is, well, what's happening Monday to Saturday in our community? Things like the black-white wealth gap, the fact that, you know, on average, the black, average black household, the median black household in America has 10% of the wealth of the median white household, 60% of the income. In Washington County, 50% of the income that the black people are over-incarcerated in our county at four times their share of the population. Like, what are we talking about that? So, mm -hmm. lastly, um, another book that I'll, that I'll reference um, is The Elusive Dream. Um, written by Corey Little Edwards. And, and in her conclusion, she, she suggests, um, as many others have, that, that we've watered Dr. King down um, and, and that um, she says multi-ethnic churches work to the extent that they make white people comfortable. Mm. Um, yep. And in my personal experience, that is absolutely true yep. um, as a rule. And so I think that we have to think a lot bigger than that um, and, and candidly, in, in closing, uh, you know, there's a number of people um, in the community that I was a part of the PCA who have, have left and, and left loud. Jamar Tismi's one of them. Um, and, and I think that um, it's important for us as individuals to invest in institutions that are practicing what they preach. Um, and so one of our responses, if we want to be faithful, is to ask ourselves how are we spending our time and our money um, and, and are the institutions that we're participating in um, behaving in a way that's consistent with what we, we believe? Yeah. I wonder if there's an element of like, you know, as I, as I think about this, what I, often, what I often hear from folks is, well, I as a white person, I worked hard for this. Like I, like I didn't come from wealth. I didn't come from money. There's this zero-sum mentality that's involved in this. Um, how, do, how does that reconcile with, with theology and liberation, this idea that, that I shouldn't have to give up something that I have worked hard for so that you can also... Does, uh, do you see where I'm coming from there? Protestant work ethic. Right, right. I mean, like, there's this element of this in the church that, like, I have worked so hard to get to this space. Jesus has rewarded me. Right, the, you know, and prosperity gospel, we could spend months talking about that. But this idea that, like, I, I have worked hard, I have prayed hard, I have done my work, why should I have to 
give up what I have worked hard for and what Jesus has offered me so that there can be an equal playing field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things I want to say. One thing I want to uh, I want to throw in for the previous question, because um, we, we often talk about the divisiveness, the, the division in churches. And uh, I think it's important for us to know that, you know, the black church is born out of the exclusion of the white church, okay. right? And so even in what you just read, right, Richard well, Allen and others, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's because it, it was they were not welcomed right. into that space. They had to create their own space. Mm-hmm. And even historically, the black church has served as a haven, as a safe space um, for black people uh, who oftentimes are marginalized in other uh, spaces which they occupy. Um, secondly, when we talk about the issue of how do we really live into the justice narrative, um, I think we really have found ourselves in a space to where we have oftentimes, we side with power and and again, as I said before, we protect our own interests, and we're not willing to speak difficult truths at necessary times. And so what we end up having are churches full of people who believe things that are unbiblical. And we talk about, you know, I worked for this. I earned this. Right? That is a, a wholly unchristian posture. Right? If we read the prophet Ezra. Right. When the people are going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Right. There, there's two things that happen. First of all, we see that the, the king who himself was not a part of the people, the, the leadership that actually took them into bondage. But right. But as he as he sends the people back, he gives them the resources of people and money and resources to build up what was taken and destroyed. And then secondly, we also see from the Israelite people that before they do any of the work (laughs) is that they actually repent for the sins of previous generations that caused them to go into exile in the first place, right? None of the generation that was there going back to, to, to Jerusalem was a part of the generation that caused the exile. But they still saw this sense of generational accountability, mm-hmm. right, and culpability, right, which is oftentimes what we miss. And one of the things that we are really good at in America mm-hmm. is that we are really good at taking credit for the good things that our ancestors have done. Yep. But really good also at rejecting, right, the negative things that they have done. Right. And so we want all the credit for the foundation of the country, Mm -hmm. all of the glories. But we want none of the blame for 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 the mistakes and the sins of our forefathers. Mm -hmm. And you cannot have it both ways. Right. Right. And we have to understand that we all stand on the shoulders of something. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as a self-made man. Mm -hmm. Every single one of us benefit from community. Right. We are shaped. We are molded. We are aided. Right. By society, by relationships, by school systems, by all types of things that help us become who we are. 
right? It is the delusion of the American dream that allows us to say things that, that make zero sense and are wholly biblically, you know, anti-Christian, anti-biblical, and while professing ourselves to be Christians at the same time. Yeah, I was just going to say, we all want this badge of saying that we're a Christian, right? Because if you're a Christian, then that means you're good. Good is synonymous with being a Christian. Um, and even, even just with that question, the two things that I kept hearing were I and works, which what you already pointed out is just completely <laughs> against um, what Jesus uh, stood for. Um, but that is as a result of you know, being socialized in an individualized society that we think of I, 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 uh, me, 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 when Jesus says, die daily, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Um, and so we, we want to say and profess that we're Christians, but we don't want to walk that thing out. Yeah, which, which uh, I guess harkens back to, we have to remember that we also live in a capitalist society and that yeah. individualist ethos is part of that and has been co-opted by the church as well. So that I, and, and, and then interesting aside to that is the, in, in the ways in which African-Americans as African descended people usually think about themselves as part of a community rather than as the individualist perspective that America uh, thrust upon um, its citizens. And so, um, you know, I mentioned on Saturday uh, when we had our panel that you know, usually white Americans want to think about their rights, but not their responsibilities, you know. And responsibility is a part of that social contract to community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, man, Korea, I had such a good time on Saturday. And if you haven't listened to, to the live stream, you need to, uh, Karee said we need to uh, civilize the suburbs. <laughs> and uh, I agree with that. Uh, you'll have to watch it for context. Um, but to comment briefly, on that perspective of, you know, I worked for this. I think that history is a really important teacher. Um, and, you know, Tisby in The Color of Compromise does a wonderful job of outlining the history of the complicity of the white church in American racism. And, and another wonderful book is Reparations by Quan and Thompson. Uh, they similarly outline the history of uh, white supremacy and, and the complicity of the church in that, which they describe essentially as theft theft of truth, theft of wealth, theft of power um, by uh, white people from black people. Um, and, and so I think that um, part of the answer to the question is, is about individualism. Um, but, but another part um, is I, I think that when we talk about racial justice, we're not talking about a ministry of mercy. Um, this is not a question of generosity. This is not a question of, I've, I've been blessed, and so I need to be a blessing. This is a question of, of justice um, and, and returning what has been stolen. I think that, like, I'm, I'm an analyst professionally, and so I I'm, I'm look at numbers all day. Like, if you look at the data and, and you, you look at any measure of, of well-being in, in our country, you, you see white folks at the top and black folks at the bottom. Like, that's not... There's a reason for that, and it's, it's a history of theft. And, and so I think that we have to reckon with that as white folks and, and ask the question, um, will, will we return what, what has been stolen or, or will we not? And um, Quan and Thompson in reparations suggest that reparations is, is simply the fruit 
that the American church must bear in, in keeping with repentance for the, for the sin of white supremacy. Um, and, and that there's really two biblical stories that, that suggest um, that we ought to do that. And one is, is the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, who, who did not steal from, from the man who had been robbed, but restored him to wholeness because he, he, would, he felt a call to participate in neighbor love. Um, but the other is Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Uh, who, who did steal um, and returned what he had stolen fourfold, again, not as a ministry of mercy or generosity, but of justice because he felt called. That was what was required of him um, to, to truly repent. That's good. I'm, and, and once again, all that points back to unless you know the history, right, and the genesis of that, then you you will look at it as uh, – as simply as a handout instead of an issue of, of justice. Thank you for pointing that out. If I could say, yeah, if I could say one more thing, I think one of the, the, the really big problems that we have is that we, our churches really have a really bad theology of justice mm-hmm. and, and, and don't understand it uh, at all. And, um, and we, it, we have the difficulty of seeing when God is constantly talking about justice throughout the scripture, right? And the themes of justice, righteousness, and shalom, which is peace, are all married together, right? Justice and righteousness are two sides of the same coin, right? And um, which talk about living together um, in wholeness, right? And even the word shalom itself talks about completeness, right? And it, there's this strong theme that the things that are fractured and broken in our world, we have the responsibility of making those things right. And so if we read through the law, it is, there is tons of laws throughout the scripture, ton, many calls to make things right that are wrong. Uh, no, even when we talk about, you know, harvesting. You know, in, in, in Leviticus 19, he says, you know, when you harvest your fields, do not harvest them to the end, right? But leave a portion for the, for the poor, the, the orphan and the, for, and the foreigner who, who pass through, right? There's, there's law, there's provision, but there's also the call for you to be able to see when there's wrong and make right. And John, John says, look, if it's a you who have the world's goods, Right, and if, if you see a brother who is in need, you have, have the word's goods. If you close your heart to him, he says the love of Christ is not in you. Right, it is the, the call to say that if we see need, if we see brokenness, we see injustice in our world, and we do nothing, we cannot at the same time claim to love Jesus. Those things cannot occupy the same space. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we attempt to do you know, gymnastics around reality, right, uh, to try to avoid the truth. And the truth is, is that the, the call of Jesus is one that really is sacrificial love, not just lip service, right? Demonstrate that you love. Demonstrate that you believe in Jesus. We, want, we need to see the fruit and the evidences of that. And oftentimes our churches have neglected the evidence of, of that wholeheartedly in many places. So uh, that's a good segue because I know uh, perhaps uh, with all the institution um, or churches that you're affiliated with, um, maybe 
all of you are part of some kind of justice work or the church itself is a part of some justice work. I know that we have a, a food pantry here at St. James um, that Monique Jones has been um, leading um, that does that kind of a work for the poor. You have NWA United, uh, which is a coalition of fasters attempting to fight uh, racism. And Lowell, you have uh, started uh, your organization that is attempting to get reparations from white churches. Can you explain that? And we'll come down the line. We'll start with you, Lowell. Yeah. Uh, what led to that idea and what is your intent? Yeah, well, you, you guys can tell I'm struggling to be brief. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. But So I'll direct you to, to our website, which is reparationsnownwa.com. Um, I've not started an organization. I've simply invited white people in churches um, to to give money to a particular expression of reparations, um, which which I'll describe briefly. Um, I've already mentioned Quan and Thompson in their book, Reparations, which is the, the theory, the why. The what is a relationship with Jamar Tisby's organization, the Witness Foundation, whose mission is to identify, train, and fund black Christian leaders. And so um, I had the opportunity to connect that theory to this opportunity to practice uh, ecclesiastical or church-based reparations as opposed to state-based reparations, which I'm also supportive of at the city, state, and federal level. Uh, again, in an attempt to be brief, um, we had an opportunity to, uh, my wife and I, ask white people and churches in our community to give $100,000 to uh, fund a fellow from Northwest Arkansas. Um, and we were able to raise those funds from about two dozen individuals in a half dozen churches, um, and we got two fellows from Northwest Arkansas. One uh, is Dustin's wife, uh, Joy McGowan, who's doing wonderful work with uh, resilient black women, uh, and the other is, is Monique Jones, uh, who's doing work here at the church. And, and so I, I won't belabor the, the theory, but I will speak briefly um, to my experience and, and what I've learned um, in interactions uh, with white people and white churches. Um, which I've also described on our website in a paper that I wrote for a, a seminary class. Um, but I believe that it's true um, what Emerson and Smith wrote in Divided by Faith, and they concluded that white evangelicalism uh, likely does more to perpetuate the racialized society than to reduce it because we've misunderstood the problem of and solution to racism. We think it's a broken black people problem. Data, data supports that statement. Um, but really it's a broken white system problem. Um, we need to widen our view uh, of racism. And, and what I've seen um, as a rule, with some exceptions, um, from, from white pastors, uh, particularly white evangelical pastors, many of whom are, are good people, um, is that uh, many white pastors and churches are willing to admit that racism is a problem. Fewer are willing to commit to anti-racist action, and fewer still are willing to submit to any kind of accountability to do anything about the things that they said that they would do. Um, and, and Dustin mentioned, you know, Matthew 23, which is a, a text that I'm studying in school as well, and this idea that, that Jesus says seven times in that chapter, woe to you, um, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, which I think 
if we were to translate into our context, would be, woe to you, pastors and elders, hypocrites. You're not practicing what you're preaching. You're not prioritizing the things that are important to me. Um, he called them snakes, blind guides, as did John the Baptist in, in, in Matthew 3. You know, Jesus got, they tried to throw him off a cliff after his first sermon in Luke 4. And so I think that um, the ending wasn't very strong either. They ended up hanging him on a cross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, Spoiler alert. What are, what are a couple of my conclusions currently, which I'm sure will evolve? So I, I concluded this most recent paper that I wrote um, in which I reflected on, you know, the last year or so um, with this reparations project um, with, with really two applications for, for myself and people like me. And one is that we need to learn from non-white people. Um, that, that includes, but it isn't limited to African-American folks um, in terms of what we read, who we listen to, who we spend time with, um, particularly how to lament. Um, we, we need to be uh, much more grieved um, by our sins and the sins of our fathers. We need to be angrier. Um, about the current state of our community and alarmed um, at the consequences um, from a God who loves justice and who hates injustice. He hates it. Um, so we're in trouble um, if we're on the side of injustice, the side of the oppressor, um, because, because God is never on that side. Um, and, and then, and this is not an original statement, this is, this is not Lowell Taylor, but... Um, we need to leave. Some of us need to leave white churches, taking our tithes with us. Um, I, I can't quote it from memory, but uh, Robert Jones wrote a, two wonderful books. Um, one is The End of White Christian America, and the other is White Too Long. Um, and he quotes James Baldwin, who suggests um, that many white people are beyond moral rehabilitation because they've been white too long. Um, and he suggests at the end of this book that real reform may only come from the ashes of the current institutional forms of white Christianity, um, which, which does not mean that people like myself don't love Jesus and don't want to follow him with other folks. Um, I want to do church, um, but, but I think that if we're, if we're, if we're serious about changing uh, the racial status quo, if we're serious about uh, getting from here to equality, um, we need to be a little more radical um, and disruptive than many of us have been to date. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, thinking about what I want to say, uh, <laughs> I appreciate you all. What you doing over there at NWA United? Yeah, so so with that, uh, I don't want to talk a lot about NWA United. Uh, I, I'm not very heavily involved now, though I was at the Genesis. Um, but I do want to really to preface, to contextualize what I want to say. Uh, uh, there's this quote, uh, if I can uh, quote a, a, a Muslim in a conversation that we're mostly talking about the church. Uh, Malcolm X says that if, if you stab me in the back with a nine-inch knife and you pull it out six inches, that is not progress. If you pull it all the way out, that is still not progress. He said progress is the healing. And we often live in a reality where the knife and the stabbing has not even been acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And uh, oftentimes what uh, I have a problem with is that our churches and 
have become satisfied with engaging in static uh, actions that they claim are for justice and move the needle forward, uh, and, but wholly neglecting the, the dynamic actions that can be taken to actually create transformational change. Um, that many of our spaces have committed ourselves to doing nothing um, and convincing ourselves that we have done everything. And uh, this is something that I've seen time and time again that leaders and churches and parishioners would do just enough to alleviate their sense of guilt, um, but not fully commit themselves to the work of justice, um, which demands a lot of your time, a lot of your talents and resources, and uh, often require you to be willing to give up power. Um, and we have seen that we have a church, uh, especially in our country, that is in love with power um, and hoards it um, and oftentimes allows that to prevent them from doing what's right. I sat on this very stage probably two years ago uh, with a pastor, prominent pastor in this community, who talked about his fear of losing his influence mm -hmm. if he did this work. And, and his voice is not just for his own. Right, there are many pastors who feel that way, right? That by them fully engaging in what they know to be true, right? Because I've had conversations with them and they, what they know to be true, right? For the fear of losing members, for the, for the fear of losing donations, for the fear of losing political influence, and uh, that they will sit on their hands and close their mouths or preach a different gospel publicly right, than what they would profess privately um, to protect themselves and their own interests. Um, and the reality is nothing changes if people are not willing to give a lot more than what they're willing to give. If we talk about as Christians, what does it mean to follow Jesus, right? Jesus demands everything. If we are willing to give Jesus anything less than our lives, then we are not willing to give him enough. Right? If you claim to be a Christian and the call from the gospel to pursue justice, right? if, you're not willing to, to, if you're willing to give anything less than your life, you're not willing to give enough to be faithful to Jesus. Mm. And those are the hard truths that need to be echoed, that need to be called out. And oftentimes we are willing, we become comfortable with allowing ourselves to appease uh, uh, white leaders and people who aren't willing to really, who really aren't committed to doing the work, uh, but really just want to be able to say, "Hey, I, I, I heard your conversation. <laughs> you know, we gave a little bit of money here. You know, we're good, right?" Mm. Versus, "Hey, we are engaged in the long work of making this right." Right? This, the reality that we have wasn't created in a weekend, <laughs> mm. and it won't be solved in one either. Right? Are you willing to commit yourself to the long grind? of what it, what it takes to pursue justice. Yeah, lots of time it's, I've felt the feelings and I've said the prayer, so let's move on now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and just, just to add to that, so, cause you know, I helped with that two years ago, a panel <laughs> discussion that Dustin just uh, referenced. And so what was happening, of course, during that time was, uh, you know, headlines, uh, George Floyd, 
Um, and so uh, we, we received so many calls, um, numerous uh, pastors in the area. I say numerous. I'll say several. Um, I'm exaggerating. Several um, <laughs> pa white pastors that reached out. Um, and it was, well, what, what can we do now all, all of a sudden? And it was almost to appease this, I think, this guilt um, that, that was being experienced. And, 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 and sadly, what ended up happening was, you know, there may have been some checks cut and there were some conversations, you know, that were had. Um, but now I would say that, do we hear from them now? Um, probably, probably not. Yeah. But the next polarizing moment that we feel or those headlines um, are out, then all of a sudden, you know, what, what, what can we do? One of the things, and I'm going to answer your question. So I'm the director of evangelism here at St. James. And one of the things that um, burdens my heart um, is the fact that as a result, and what we don't realize, I think, um, is as a result of white supremacy, we have on each side, with my white brothers and sisters, we have white supremacy, we have nationalism, and then with my black brothers and sisters, we have this rise of black identity cults and um, other um, sects of, of just uh, falsehood um, that runs rampant. And so Satan likes to use all of that, right, um, in order to further divide um, people, um, and, and it, it is a burden that I carry um, and, and that I thank God for that I carry and that I know that he will use me to continue uh, to preach uh, the gospel and to continue to unite people, um, no matter what color you are, right, what race, um, gender, your background, um, that we are all God's children and that there is work that needs to be done, that we not sit um, complicit in our silence, but that, as Dustin pointed out, we love in action. And so oftentimes I hear from so many people, well, what can we do? What is the work that needs to be done? And I think these gentlemen uh, to my right have already outlined some things that, that can be done. Um, and I'll stop there. One of the things, you talked about Robert Jones uh, his, in his book, Why Too Long. The last chapter he talks about is reckoning and this idea that we can't, we can't move forward until we reckon with what has happened and we look at the roots of what has brought us here. Um, in order to reckon, a lot of things have to change within Christianity here in America. You know, there's a lot of Christian nationalism and white Christian nationalism, especially here in America. Having said that, what gives you hope? I mean, other than Jesus, don't, don't give me the Bible school answer, but what gives you hope that liberation is possible with Christianity here in America? When you look at your brothers and sisters here in Northwest Arkansas, what gives you hope <laughs> that liberation is possible and that we can move to a space where we can live alongside each other and feel this sense of brotherhood that's not separated by race or class or gender or sexual orientation so i'll go first but my my hope and my trust is is in jesus um and i believe that it requires a heart change and i believe that 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 the the power that it takes to do that is by the holy spirit um and and a heart change must um take place secondly repentance 
And repentance is not just, oh, I did wrong. God will forgive me and I'm going to remain complicit. No, repentance means that there's a change that's going to take place, that I don't ever want to do that again. And God, I need your spirit to transform my heart because I don't ever want to do that again. Um, and so that it requires that shift, that, that change of, of direction. And in order for there to be uh, that, that reckoning that's taking place, it, it requires repentance, um, which is a heart change. Uh, to, to borrow from Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, she talks about, you know, uh, I spent years praying and I decided to pray with my feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that the hope is that we see that God is active in liberation with people on the margins and has always been. Right? If we look at the historical narrative of black people, <laughs> right, that uh justice is is pushed right whether or not uh uh those who in power want to concede um and i just believe because you know like dr king says that you know the arc of history bends towards justice i believe that power concedes Uh, nothing without a demand yeah absolutely and um and we have to believe that um i think oftentimes we can be you know, you know, temporarily locked in the, the cultural moment that we're in. Um, and, but, you know, the, uh, the, the ability to dream and imagine that I've gained in my upbringing in a black church allows me to see the bigger, more beautiful picture, right? Uh, the picture of the progress that, you know, my forefathers have <laughs> and have, have built, uh, those incredibly resilient women and men who have brought us to this, to this time. And I, I don't believe that that will, will stop. And so we have a generation, you know, I'm a millennial too. And then the generation Z under us are, are incredibly activist minded. And, uh, and I believe that people who are committed to the real Jesus will do the real work. Um, and, uh, and oftentimes, you know, th- this is sad to say this, but sometimes you have to think about it, you know, in the way which, uh, Moses, uh, <laughs> or the people in exile generations have to die off mm. and people who are committed to upholding broken power structures and systems. Um, and new generations have to raise up to, to who are committed to doing what's right. I think the question for us, even if, if things change, um, will we uphold ourselves to maintaining justice if we accomplish it? Um, or will we set the stage for it to happen again in another generation? Um, that, that, that is a thing that we have to pray for, um, that we will be more faithful to. I love the question. Um, and, and I can think of hope on a few horizons. Um, one, one is that, and, and we have this, you know, uh, on my mantle, uh, Jesus is coming soon. Um, and, Say that again. Amen. He's coming. He's coming soon. Uh, and and we know whose whose side he's on as it relates to justice. Um, but we don't commit ourselves to some otherworldly religion, as Dr. King said. We we pray with our feet. Um, and the truth. Uh, is that our country is changing. Uh, it is browning. Uh, and 
in 2040-something, uh, white folks will be in the minority. And, and really the premise of the end of white Christian America is, and, and the, he doesn't make a, a moral statement here, he just says, you know, statistically, it's just a fact that the sun is setting on white Christian cultural dominance in our country. So feel about that how you want, but that's the truth. Um, and so I, I say that as, as a white person in Washington County, which is, I think, 77% white, to say that it will not always be this way. Um, and it will not be this way soon. Um, and so we, we get to decide what we want to do with that. Um, and I think that's an opportunity. And, and then the third horizon is a little near, and I've been reflecting a lot on this, like, if nothing changes in the world outside of myself, do, do I want um, to suffer from what James Baldwin described as the madness of whiteness? Uh, what Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about, he likens, you know, uh, America to an alcoholic that, that, you know, can't see that he is addicted to alcohol. I don't want to suffer from the sickness of believing lies about myself about my community, about our country, about my history. Like, Jesus Jesus said that the truth sets us free. And so, if nothing else, I want, I want my children to, to see the truth about what has happened in our country um, and to, to be set free by that and to participate, to, to join what I would describe as I think Wilson Hartgrove has as the black-led freedom movement. Not, not to start it, right, but to join it. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, that train, like, it left the station a long time ago, and, and it hasn't stopped. So the question for me as a white guy is, am I going to get on board or not? Mm-hmm. And, and I want to get on board. Yeah. Do we have any questions out in the audience? Is there anything that we may have missed, anything that interests you? I'd love to hear from you. I know you are here because you're interested in this topic so please don't be shy uh she asked when do you know that we've met the balance like where where we strive where are we striving to get to i think in regards to 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 race to um you know liberation in that in that situation when is enough enough (laughs) i'll speak to that briefly um so there's two answers to that question i think from my perspective um, one is Sandy Darity's book, From Here to Equality, um, which is a treatment of reparations, and, and he's an economist. And, and so he suggests, from that perspective, the, 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 the goal is to close the black-white wealth gap, which sounds audacious, um, but is not impossible. Um, it, the other thing, I, I want to allude to a conversation that's has happened online between some Presbyterian folks, Quan and Thompson, who wrote Reparations, and Kevin DeYoung, who's a contributor to the Gospel Coalition, who criticizes Quan and Thompson as essentially um, uh, shifting, uh, creating some utopian vision of uh, some sort of economic equality that um, subverts um, gospel truth, right? It's this new salvation, which is, you know, this social justice. And, and, I think it's important that, that we understand that there is, um, I, think, I think the word, um, you know, there, there's a, a legal or a, 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 a personal salvation component to the, to the gospel that we, we want to maintain, you know, our standing with God. But there's also like an ethical, ethical implications of the gospel. There's a particular way that we ought to live. And so 
when, when we push people to, to live ethically and when we strive to do so ourselves, that's not subverting this, this other thing over here, which is, you know, right belief in our relationship with Jesus, as if to say we don't have to worry about any of that anymore. No, these things are connected. Um, and, and so oftentimes we hear people say, you know, you need to be gospel-centered, um, which, which is a defensive mechanism to suggest that, in answer to your question, um, the thing we ought to be focusing on um, is, is people's souls, and to do anything else uh, is, is to digress. Um, and that's a false dichotomy that we should reject. Well, I think kind of what you're trying to get at there is this idea that, you know, growing up in a white church, this idea of like personal salvation, a personal experience. And I remember singing songs where we talked about like, it's not about religion, it's about your personal salvation. And when I, after college, I spent some time um, going to a Methodist church. And one of the things that really fascinated me about the church was during baptisms, there wasn't just this moment where it was a personal baptism, but it was a communal baptism where, you know, the pastor looked out into his congregation and said, do you, at this time, do you agree to help raise this child in the church? Do you agree to take a stance to say, it is my responsibility as a, as a member of this community to take part in this? And it removes that element of personal responsibility and makes it larger that it's it's not just my faith I'm worried about it's everyone's faith and everyone who calls themselves a Christian and calls themselves to be of Christ that it's it's taking it to another step and I think that's one of the things that really resonates with me when we talk about um, one of the one of the things that white evangelicals struggle with is this hyper individualism that for them you know it's this idea that well I'm not racist, therefore racism doesn't exist. And it's not that simple. And, and being able to recognize that just because I may not see myself as racist doesn't mean that racism is non-existent. And so I, I'm, I'm yes-anding what you're talking about, this idea that it's more than just like a personal salvation experience, that you have this ethical, you have this more than personal responsibility within your faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, I, I ditto everything that's been said. Um, I think one of the things that's, that's very important um, as we think about this is that um, when, even when I, anytime that I talk about um, the issue of particularly American racial injustice, I I, I never divorced that from the broader theme of justice itself um, because uh, justice in this lifetime is not a destination. It is an ongoing commitment because we have to acknowledge, and this is something that I see very often in our own society, is that we have this desire to see ourselves as the good people as honorable, right, as the virtuous ones, and that all the problems that exist in the world are outside of me, right? And, you know, that, that's not a biblical framework. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I, we have to acknowledge our own uh, tendency, <laughs> our own capacity to oppress people, to do harm, to marginalize people. 
and to understand that the commitment to justice, racially or otherwise, is a lifelong commitment until Jesus comes and makes all things right. There is not a time where I would say that, there, that, the, that the scales, the Libra scales have been balanced and that I can now take a step back and rest and say that, you know, wow, look at the work of my hands, it's good. No, but in this lifetime, we will have to commit ourselves for our lives to being actively vigilant against the injustice and brokenness we see in the world, wherever it might be, right? And we take that cue from King's own life, right? When King makes the statement, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He is broadening the scope of what justice is beyond the black experience, right? He's speaking against the war in Vietnam and, and inju economic injustice across the land and across the globe, right? That we as people of faith who are committed to Jesus are to be committed to justice. When Jesus says he, he's going to come and he talks about, you know, in two different parables, the wheat and the tares and the sheep and the goats, right? What does Jesus say? you know, it's going to define the, the, the two different groups, right? You know, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was in prison. Did you feed me? Right? And he says, you know, when, when did we see you like this? <laughs> right? And he says, he says, whenever you neglected or did to any of these groups, right, you did them also to me. Right? And that is the thing that we have to say. There is, there is no such thing as a social, a social gospel. Right. The God, justice, the gospel all, always has social implications. Right. You have to truncate Jesus and remove a lot of what he says to come to the conclusion that there are two separate gospels, a social one and a non and a, and a pure one. And so if we want to be Christians who are faithful to Jesus, faithful to the whole canon of scripture, faithful to the prophets. Right. And we don't want to be like the Pharisees who they talk about in Matthew 23 and Luke 11. You who killed the prophets. Right. You know, uh, because they spoke about justice. That's why they were killed, because they called the, the nations out about injustice. And the people didn't like it. Israel didn't like it. So they killed the prophets. And so we are those same kind of people. When people call out injustice, we want to murder them, whether it is physically, whether it is uh, in their character, in the social media, in the, in the, whatever it might be. We have to see in ourselves our own tendency to be oppressors and to say, God, you called us to justice. How can we, co we can correct that and commit our lives to that? Uh, I think I got two questions. One. You only get one, bro. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of connected. Uh, the first question is, Uh, I mean, Lo said it, like, our country is becoming more, like, it's, 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 the sun is setting on this, like, evangelical Christian framework, the idea, like, can we have justice with, without Christianity? And then, as a backup, I want to ask, I think part of that has happened because of the credibility of the church. How do you restore the cre credibility of the church? as a viable option and framework for this idea of justice. Does that make sense? Uh, I would honestly say, uh, and this, this is based on my, de my definition, right, of justice and, 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 and biblically, that justice as God describes justice uh, 
is for things to be in harmony as he created and intended them to be. Right? So apart from that, there is disorder. Right? And so God himself would say that there is no justice apart from him. Right? And he is the very standard essence, embodiment of what justice is. Right? How do we live into that? And we, we get the perfect example of what that is in Jesus. Right? As he comes and he lives the life of justice. Right? And gives the, offer, the ultimate sacrifice of justice. Right? Which to our eyes is an act of injustice, but is a perfect act of justice. Because it makes people who are not right, right. Okay? That, that, that you know. <laughs> and so... Um, I would say no, but I, I think the way in which we restore the credibility of the church in the pursuit of justice is to be faithful to the scripture. One of the things that we do, all of us do, is that when we read the, the Bible, we read and we, we lynch on to the things that matter to us, Right? Uh, Francis Chan makes a statement. He says, if you read the Bible and Jesus does not, does not contradict you, you are not reading Jesus faithfully. You are reading yourself onto Jesus. And I think the important thing for us to do is to really take hold of the whole canon of Scripture and to live out the ethic of the Scripture, right? Oftentimes we get caught up in theology, Right? And oftentimes, us intellectuals who like to talk a lot about theology, we do that because, you know, we can, you can philosophize about something to no end and actually never have to do anything, <laughs> right? Because there's always another but or and, right? And so, but we see theology has the end. We look at Romans, and Paul goes through this treaty of what the gospel is, right, to address a cultural issue. There's a cultural issue in Romans, right? There's a, a, a conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Right, Paul says the answer to that is the gospel. And so he walks through what the gospel is. So that at Romans 12, my favorite chapter in the Bible, he can say this. He says, after we've been transformed by the renewing our mind, what renews our minds? The gospel. He says, you do what? He says, he says, uh, love one another with brotherly love. Right? He says, outdo one another in showing honor. From verse 9 all the way through the end, he gives the ethic of what it means to live the faith. Right? And so the, we, we follow the gospel so that we might live the gospel out faithfully with one another. And so that is how you reclaim the ethic, right? To abandon your own perspective of it and allow Jesus and the scriptures to craft it, all of it, even the hard parts, even the difficult parts, even the violent parts, even all of that is a part of the narrative that is, we're supposed to be faithful to. And so whenever we try to pick and choose where we want to be, we always going to create a gospel that is going to be hypocritical and disingenuous and not transforming. And I, I would just say, um, just, you know, you mentioned earlier about how going to churches and you hear pastors say, well, we need to teach the gospel and gospel centric. And so I believe that the gospel is big enough for racial reconciliation. I Amen. believe the gospel is big enough um, to, uh, you know, with um, in terms of injustices, um, and and but the but the thing like Justin just uh, Dustin just said is that you know we have manipulated 
Um, and I say we because that's been happening since the beginning of time. We have manipulated the word of God. We have uh, used uh, and abused <laughs> um, to fit our own agendas for what we want at that giving time um, in order to get what we want. Um, and so it's not until we live out the gospel the way that God intended us uh, to that we will see um, change. But again, I believe that it's with the gospel. It's only by the gospel of Jesus. It's only by the gospel. If I may, Jasper, I think it's a really important question, um, not in a theoretical sense, but in a, like, how are you going to live your life kind of sense? Um, can, can we have justice without the church, without Christianity, without the gospel? I, I don't know, but, but I do know that for, for those of us who say, I want to follow Jesus, we need to pay more attention to how he treated people who, who were not church folks. And, and, and for me, part of, um, well, I, I, I left a, a church. I'm not currently a member of a church. I'm, I'm attending one, th this one. But today I'm not a member of a church. And so I lost that community. And I realized there, there's all these other wonderful people in my city who are made in the image of God, um, whom he loves, whom he's given common grace and, and skills and abilities and talents, who are doing wonderful work in my community, who, who I have looked down on because they don't know my Jesus. Um, I've been like, you know, Luke 18 is one of my favorites, uh, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, God, thank you that I'm not like this person and this person and this person. <laughs> And the tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that guy goes home justified, not the first guy. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think for those of us who, who say, man, we understand biblical justice. We understand Jesus. We understand theology. We know all this stuff. Um, we, need to, we need to take a different posture towards our community. Um, and in terms of, I mean, I think that's the answer to the second question. Um, it, it's a question of posture, like... Um, Charles and Ra wrote a book called Unsettling Truths, and a friend of ours, uh, Christian Williams, interviewed uh, Mark Charles, who's a, who's a, a Native American, about this book, uh, Unsettling Truths, in which they talk about the doctrine of discovery, and, and, and they suggested the conclusion that what, what we need is like a, a truth and reconciliation committee, and the church needs to join that, but we can't lead it because we've lost our credibility in the community. And so I, I think that, you know, after George Floyd got murdered, um, I watched a lot of white pastors stand up in the pulpit and say, we're going to lead. Um, and I think they were wrong to, to do that. Um, and, and some of them, you know, well-intentioned, um, others less so. Um, but I think that we do need to, to join, um, but, but not to lead. Um, and we need, to, we need to, to look at folks in our community um, who, who don't believe what we do um, and, and maybe say, like, I disagree. But, but I want to affirm your humanity, the, the Imago Dei in you, and, and celebrate um, the things that you're doing that, that, I, that I can't do, um, and, and join. And this one last thing, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I think we have to believe um, that we can collaborate and in in accomplish good um, with those who don't have the same viewpoint as, as us. One of the beautiful things about the civil rights movement, you know, and we think about it and, you know, 
normally King and his nonviolent movement gets all the credit, right, for accomplishing, you know, uh, you know, different successes in the civil rights movement. But that's not the whole story, right? We have many different movements happening simultaneously that are contributing to that end, right? And so we have other leaders, Malcolm X and others, you know, Stokely Carmichael's and, you know, even in the latter parts towards the, you know, the end of the 60s into the 70s, Black Panthers, all these groups that are contributing to the work. You know, if we go a generation before that, we talk about, you know, the, 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 the tension because between the boy and, 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 and Washington and their approaches to how do we elevate, you know, the, uh, the, the, the living conditions of, of our people. They had different approaches to that, right? But both of them were necessary in order to make progress. And I or think... We could, just to jump in there, we could talk about the deacons of defense who provided the security so that absolutely. Martin Luther King could be nonviolent. Absolutely. You know, he had the blicky in the yeah. car behind King <laughs> exactly. so that, you know, King could be like, peace and love. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing he had shooters in the back. Absolutely. <laughs> And so, like, yeah, we have to we have to acknowledge that. And I think uh, any one of us have to be humble enough to acknowledge that it takes all of us. And this is a king thing again. He says either we will, you know, learn to flourish as brothers, right, or we'll perish as fools, right. And so there is a collaborative movement in order to pursue justice in this world, right. And uh, I think that you know that the church should lead without leading, <laughs> if, that, if, that, if, if you understand that, right? Uh, as the church has done historically, and I'm not just talking about the last couple of centuries, from the beginning of the early church, right? Even, you know, uh, you know uh, 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 emperor in the third century, he was trying to figure out, hey, how do we, you know, take the church, you know, take, you know, Rome back from the Christians? He says, you know, and his people came back, he's like, we're having a really hard time. He says they're, you know, they're taking care of all the poor, taking care of all the sick, they're taking care of all the orphans, you know, uh, they're taking, you know, better care of our people than we are. <laughs> and so how do you get back to actually having that kind of reputation for how do we live and live out the gospel in the world versus uh, the church now has, you think about the church and you think about negative things before you think about positive things. That, that's a terrible testimony and that has to be reversed. One of the things, I went to a, a small Christian college, and uh, in my theology class that I took as a freshman, uh, I remember a professor saying to me, um, one, of the, one of the best things that you can do is when someone asks you a question and you don't know it, your gut response is to, to shoot, a, shoot a scripture at them, right? To say, well, and, and John, he says this. And, and the, the professor said to me, um, you know, that's a good question. I don't know the answer, but let's find out. Mm -hmm. And it's this sense of invitation, this saying, I don't know the answer, you don't know the answer, let's find out together and let's learn together. It's this, it's this sense of humility, it's this sense of bonding, it's this sense of realizing that we're both human, <laughs> that, that we don't know the answers, but this invitation to find out together I think is really important. And I think really gets to this idea that you're talking about is, as a church, perhaps that's what we ought to do is especially as we look at the white church, that, that the white church shouldn't be the folks saying, I'm going to fix racism. They should be the ones saying, I don't know the answer, but let's find out. 
one last thing. I want to, you know, yeah. W.E.B. Du Bois says, you know, you know, ignorance has never cured anything, mm. <laughs> right? And so for our churches to really understand that we're, we're pretty ignorant at a lot, about a lot of this stuff. And you can't solve things that you don't know about, right? And how do we submit in learning to people who are better experts at it than we are? And so, you know, the lesson of humility. One of the number one characteristics a Christian should have is humility. And that's one that we're severely lacking, but is definitely necessary if we're going to make gain any ground. And then after you learn it, trust it. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has certainly been perhaps one of the most fascinating conversations I've been a part of. And I thank you, especially to Matthew. He did his thesis on religion and um, writing about this kind of stuff. So I've learned so much from all of you. And I will treasure this experience um, going forward. I want to thank you all for being on this panel. And I hope um, as we go forward in, in your, the words that you've said that we you know, should be, you know, if upon this rock I shall build my church, that we can create a foundation where these kinds of questions and deeds and habits and ethos can be formed in the community. I call it a community for African and African American studies, but I certainly believe that um, or, or hope that we can join hands as you know, we attempt to do our part in this struggle, church, university, you know, um, community, all together um, to achieve this end. So I want to thank you all. I want to thank the guests for coming out. Um, thank you so much for your participation. Our panelists were Suzanne Bridges, Dustin McGowan, and Lowell Taylor. Thanks to the folks at St. James Missionary Baptist Church for recording and live streaming this conversation. The show is produced by me, Matthew Moore, and our host is Karee Banton. Undisciplined is a collaboration between KUAF Public Radio, Ozarks at Large, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the pod and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Oh.